Welcome back to another Impact tonight of the Impact Education Leadership. This is episode 193. I'm your host, 934. I'm third. Tonight's panelists are Buddy Thornton, AJ Crabbell, and Carl Berry. Buddy Thornton, please say hello again to the people. Good evening, everybody, and it is a real honor to be on the pod tonight with my esteemed panel mates. Absolutely. AJ, please say hello to the people and introduce yourself. Thank you so much for having me. I've worked with school systems to get focused on improving performance for students and to train students on how to lead restorative circles. Ooh, this is going to be good tonight. And Carl Berry, please hello again to the people, sir. Hello, my people. I know all of you there are here because you care. And thank you for being here. Absolutely, absolutely. Well, you know, tonight's topic is a heavy one. And at this time, it sounds so logical for me. Um, But we're going to be talking about this topic. We're going to be talking about it in a way that helps us to identify problems. uh, That helps us to identify what what causes those problems. And helps us to uh, find ways to navigate through the problems or even around the problems or even avoid the problems. Uh, let's go around the panel really quick. The topic of the night is conflict resolution. Conflict resolution. What was your thoughts when you got the topic for the night? Well, this is AJ. I'm happy to jump in and just share a little bit about uh, the work I'm doing with training students on how to lead processes around conflict in their school communities. Part of what got me into this is that it's clear to me that conflict is just a natural part of the human experience but what happens at most schools is if it doesn't get addressed in a meaningful way then conflict can escalate into violence or the maladaptive behavior and unfortunately a lot of conflict has come back as we've returned from the pandemic um, without the necessary quantity of resources to try to help students navigate it Uh, The idea of student-led restorative practices, which is what I train, is to bring students into the equation by training them to be able to lead restorative processes in their schools. And so that when issues come up, that instead of adults being the first line of engagement, that students can go to their peers with issues or adults can send students to their peers instead of sending them home or sending them uh, to other adults. The other benefit of this approach is that whoever is leading the, the mediation process, that person is learning a lot about the process of mediation. Like whoever, and so if adults are leading the, the process, then adults are learning more about that and that's great. But it also means that if students are leading the process, then students are learning more. And so having students lead the restorative processes in their school isn't just a great way to make the conversations more available to more students. It's also a great way to help students develop a set of skills that are going to help them be successful, not only in school, but in the rest of life. Oh, I told you it's going to be on tonight. Who's next? What was your thoughts when you got to talk for a night? Conflict resolution. Yeah, it's actually in my wheelhouse because I own BCT Mediations Plus and I've been mediating in the community for over 13 years. But what came to mind for me is how do we actually explain to people why conflict happens 
and it's because it's an organic process how multi-layered it can be and i'll address that when i answer your question later on smooth smooth who's next who's next this is carl berry i say this often isaiah on podcasts and i think one of the things you talked about is why is there conflict that's what buddy was kind of referring to and i think we've got to understand uh, an authoritative source says that we deal with on planet earth evil in high places stalin said whoever controls the media controls the mind and they disrespect us so much they even tell us what they do to us things like misinformation and fake news and if they can do what they do with ai why don't we understand that they do the same thing with manipulating people within their silos to keep them in a conflicting mode so that they can keep the spot spot uh pot stirred and uh divide and conquer Ooh, it's gonna be passion tonight let me go to aj real quick aj you said something that was you pulled from me and I just asked you to unpack conflict resolution that would have meant to you with the topic. But you went in a totally different direction. And you changed the trajectory of the podcast. And that's okay, because I like that. But but you're, you forced me to ask this question, open up the panel with, with a question about how do we begin to establish or how are we establishing, I would say, communities and, and the community credibility and the community report and the com- community, I would say, validity and trust as it relates to, I would say, these four prongs. Critical self-reflecting would be one. Two, promoting inclusive environments. Three, humanizing student identities. And then four, promoting culturally responsive instruction, which means you have to write the right curriculum. So promoting culturally responsive curriculum and with that culturally responsive pacing of the curriculum within the instruction. The panel is open. How do we establish that credibility in our communities for those black and brown students, those indigenous students? How do we do it? We're talking about conflict resolution. What's your thoughts? Yeah, I I appreciate the inquiry. so the, I'll take it in two completely separate chunks, though. So the first part is how do we establish credibility in the context of community? And um, for the purpose of this conversation, I would say that community is unlikely to emerge uh, outside of the context of safety. And that's not only psychological safety, but also physical safety. That if I don't feel safe in a space, then I'm unlikely to have the experience of community in this space, that, that I will try to seek out meeting my need for community, my need for safety, before I'm prepared to indulge in a sense of community. And so to the extent that there are conflicts, that is healthy, natural, human phenomenon. 
to the extent that there isn't a process for those conflicts to uh, work for people to process through them, to work through them, uh, then we create a space where uh, violence, whether psychological or physical, is more likely. And so the more that we can create a safe context for people maneuvering through the inevitability of interpersonal conflict, the more we create the context for community, we create a space that has a physical and psychological safety that people will be open to the experience of community. So that's the first part of that is the relationship between how we uh, negotiate conflict and its impact on our experience of community. As it relates, then the four ideas that you lift up, uh, critical self-reflecting, promoting inclusive environment, humanizing student identities, and promoting culturally responsive instruction, those things then can be built in the context of community. But I would similarly argue that absent the context of community, those four ideas won't be able to gain traction. There there won't be enough soil for them to really plant roots in. The, The community is the soil that those four ideas Uh, will germinate in. And so step one, how do we create a physically and uh, emotionally, psychologically safe space where people can experience community? And then once we've done that, then we can, uh, then we've created a space where students can critically self-reflect, where they can really look at what are my behaviors and what, what, how have they contributed to or detracted from uh, our larger community in, in the context of the school, our learning community. Um, in the context of community, then we can have meaningful conversations about promoting inclusivity in the environment. Um, but if I don't feel safe, I'm, I'm probably not spending my time thinking about how do I get included in something I already don't feel safe in. But once I do feel a sense of community, then uh, I'm more open to leading and participating in conversations about inclusive environment. Um, just having a psychologically safe place is a necessary prerequisite for humanizing student identities to feeling like it's okay for me to show up as who I am and where I am and how I am. And then ultimately this idea of promoting culturally responsive instruction. Uh, I think this is work that uh, starts with um, our, starts with our instructional leaders that if we don't have principals who are invested in a particular methodology of instruction, then we shouldn't expect to consistently have teachers who invest in that either. And so uh, that is something that if you're looking for, if that's something that's important to you and you're wondering how do we bolster that, uh, I would look not necessarily directly to conflict um, processes for that. I'd be looking at leadership processes for that. Oh, that was, thank you for that response. Thank you for that. Listen, at, in other words, the question is, are we over-policing our students? Are we over-disciplining our students across the board? Are we doing it? What's your thoughts? The panel's open. Well, again, Carl, I- if we're talking about in the context of a school, what the data suggests is... So- whether or not we're over-policing, I think that's subject to interpretation. But I think what the data is fairly clear about that is less subjective is are we disproportionately policing in our schools and in our communities? And uh, the data on that seems to be relatively clear that some of our students, uh, particularly our uh, African-American Latino students, are experiencing higher rates of engagement with <clears throat> discipline systems uh, that 
lead to interactions with policing systems uh, than their peers are. And so that seems to be fairly clear in the research literature. The panel's still open and it's getting good. It's going to get better. Who's next? Well, I agree with AJ, but if I had to tell you my true thought when you said that, I really think the education development is underserving the communities, kind of what AJ was talking about, uh, because we talk a lot about DEI, uh, diversity, equity, and inclusion, but the word community is oversimplified. I'm blessed with Community Care Resource Council to work with Asians, to work with uh, uh, the Indians from the India, African Americans, Caucasians, uh, Indigenous Indians, certainly Black people, and the, the list goes on. And then you got to divide all those cultural streams into education uh, division, into income division. And so when you look at the cultural needs of education, depending on who you're educating, uh, if it's a public school system, then you really got some real uh, complex requirements to try to reach the minds of the people. And if you've got a, a specialized school system, then you are ignoring, like AJ says, some of the cultural streams because you're dealing usually with an upper class, upper educated, upper income uh, when you get to your private schools or some of these schools that are, you know, getting specialized funding for schools. And so we've got to understand that the challenge that we face in addressing culture in and of itself is monstrous. And in order to do that, we as educators and those that are serving our communities have to be educated and we have to be involved with one another to understand where they're coming from. You know, it took me a long time to understand what a sweat lodge was until I went to one. And so I think these are the kind of things that are also important to us in today's culture, because if we're ever going to get past our silos, we've got to get into each other's living room. Hot off the press. Panel is still open. What's your thoughts? I believe it's Buddy. I think the most important thing uh, that both uh, uh, the people in the panel and the audience should know is that uh, we have to address everything from an open position and we have to lead with no blaming, no shaming, no judging and also with universal positive regard. There are a lot of things that people don't do. I, I'm one of those people who believes in community building. So I think that you should know your neighbor and treat your neighbor as if they're someone of value, not just someone who has to occupy space next to you. And uh, I'll reserve the rest until I get into my uh, question. Absolutely, absolutely. Thank you for that. Thank you for all the responses. Actually, Actually, if I could just reflect on that point, this is AJ again. Um, some time ago, I was the vice president of my neighborhood association. And so we're, it's a lower income neighborhood association. At that time, I lived in Kennedy, Missouri, is on the east side and one of the lower income neighborhoods in the city. And so we were always looking for what could we do that could create the sense of safety in the neighborhood? You know, as 
um, particularly for our older residents, you know, but also for our families. And so we tried all kinds of different things, partnerships with the police, uh, you know, there's just so many different strategies that we tried. Um, at the end of all those things, the strategy, the number one strategy that had the biggest impact because we partnered up to crunch the data with our local university. And so we measured almost everything we were doing to try to figure out what's actually working to create safety in our neighborhoods. At the end of all of these different strategies, different grants, money spent, all of these different things, really the one thing that had the biggest impact on the uh, increase in safety on the block was the extent to which uh, the people on the block knew each other's names. If everybody on the block knew who everybody else was, that in and of itself seems to have been a more powerful protective mechanism than additional policing, than cameras, than additional street lights, and all the other things that you might invest in to try. Just do the people on the block have a familiarity and a regard for each other? Uh, when I look on the block, do I know who belongs on this block and who doesn't? Just that phenomenon seemed to make the single biggest difference in the, in the reality and the experience of safety in, in, a, in that neighborhood. Oh, that's good because I think we, I think you're talking about self determination, and I would say community empowerment of community community. Yeah, back in the day when we had those communities, I don't remember that because I'm I'm a little bit younger than you, some of you guys, but we had those communities, and you know you got in trouble at school, and before you got home, everyone knew because it, it was a village. That's right. <laughs> in, that's right. In that's the right. And, and and I think we're stepping away. Well, I know we we have stepped away from that sense of community you can be living next door to someone and you not even know their name you never you never borrowed food from them because there's so many things out there you're scared to eat the food from because you don't know if they put something in the food there's just so many variables now and it has dehumanized community what is there is there any way? I guess we can open the panel up with this question, because uh, but we gotta get back to the script. But is there any way that we can rehumanize our our communities? And if, and if so, what's your thoughts? The panel's open. I knew I liked AJ for a reason. I grew up in Kansas City, Kansas, and so I know all very right, all right. very well. Uh, the part of town he's talking about because my sister, my half-sister, grew up in the east side of Kansas City, Missouri. But the point he made is still applicable today, not just uh, in people of my uh, uh, generation, but today. The more you know the name of the person that's next to you, that means that you are involved with them. I'm going to go back to my involvement statement. Uh, we've got to know each other, understand each other. We've got to seek to understand rather than to be understood. We've got to quit thinking while somebody else is talking and learn how to truly listen. And then we've got to understand what hearing is. Because hearing is not interpretation. Hearing is listening for the overtone. Where is the interjection? Where is the uh, pace in which they speak? What kind of passion is behind what's being said? And so I, I still go back, and I think AJ hits it on the head. Buddy always hits it on the head. It's community. It's respect. It's love and respect one another, even though you don't understand them. 
instead of looking for what you don't like, look for what you like and then understand whatever it is you don't like is probably what you don't like about yourself as well. Ooh, the panel is still open. I'm about to get ready to close it because I'm, I'm, I'm feeling one. No, you can't close it yet. No, 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 no. <clears throat> I'm going to attach pop culture to this conversation. I don't know how many people on this panel would have watched the movie We Bought a Zoo. <clears throat> but one of the lines in the, in the movie was, it only takes 20 seconds of courage to achieve an end. And when I'm doing community building, I walk into people and they say, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm afraid to walk down my sidewalk. And I look at them and I say, have you looked in the mirror? Have you summoned up that 20 seconds of courage to go next door and knock on your neighbor's door and say, hi, my name is, I'd like to know your name and the name of your children. So if they ever have an issue, they can come to my house because they don't have to fear me. I'd like you to get to know me. That took me 17 seconds. 17 seconds. If you don't know the name of the children who live next to you, you do not know the name of the people who live down the block. Of course you're going to have fear. That's what has disappeared across America. And I know it doesn't matter what the socioeconomic background is because I have dealt with people from all different groups and they all say the same thing. I used to be able to. Now I cannot. It's time to turn that one piece of the clock back and say, if I don't know my neighbor's children's first names, I should be ashamed of myself. I need to get out there. 20 seconds of courage. Buddy, you always put me to work. You always put me to work. I love it. Next, I want to go to, I want to go into de-escalation techniques. Um, because the conversation is, is just going, it's building, it's building to that next, that next rung, I would say. This, this old man told me this one time, and I thought it was so wise. And it, it was biblical. He said, the humble shall hear. He said, matter of fact, he said, the humble shall hear thereof and be glad. And when he dropped it on me, it was a gem. And when I unpacked it, I started to listen in a way that I had to have patience because it required patience. It required focus. It required me repeating what he said in my mind several times. And when I did it, I could sense I began to get challenged through life situations. It was like I got tested. Once I got that knowledge, once I got that new level, it was like I got tested at that new level. And I failed a lot. I took a lot of losses because it was emotional. It was an emotional learning. It was a high emotion. It was high energy. And I had to, I guess, focus through the noise. We are dealing, we are in the presence of some children today that don't know how to focus through the noise. Focus through the noise of trauma, focus through the noise of anxiety, focus through the noise of homelessness, focus through the noise of abuse, starvation, bullying. We got some wisdom on the panel tonight. How would you teach a child how to focus through the noise? The panel's open. Who wants to take that first? 
I grew up in a time when there were uh, three TV channels and the TV would sound off at midnight. There would be no TV after midnight until about 6 a.m. And when you got talk about noise, I think about all of the noise, all of the digital marketing, all of the social media, all of the multiple channels and streaming and radio stations and all of the emails. And so all of that is noise. And in dealing with multiple cultures, I did a COVID uh, hesitancy program for the University of Texas. And one of the things that worked best for us throughout all cultures was motivational interviewing. And not to try to tell people what to think, not to try to tell people what other things to think, but to understand how to play the simple definition to complex conflict, uh, complex uh, subjects. One of the biggest ones is mental health. Because when you say mental health, people hear mental illness. And once we explain to people that people that don't like group tests, is a great form of mental illness because if you don't like your phone buzzing all the time, if it bothers you and if you've got a problem in your head with it, that's mental health. Your head is crowded. And what you talked about, Isaiah, the kids have got a whole lot more to go through today than I did when I was a kid. And so, you know, I didn't even stay in the house and deal with all the noise. I went out on the street corner, and if, if there was 10 kids, and then I had 10 sources of noise. But now I'm dealing with, you know, playing games with people on the other side of the world with a, a device. I'm dealing with, you know, cultures. I'm dealing with predators. And so uh, it's very important that we have some people like Buddy and AJ and Isaiah Drone that talk loudly and consistently and deliberately and intentionally in order that they can be heard by those people like those on the podcast today that are listening. Everybody's not going to get it, but you reach people, one person, one family, one house at a time. You know, let let me say this really quick. This this podcast is being listened to in over 2,500 uh, different cities across the globe, across the world. Um, we don't have enough time uh, to name uh, those cities and in those countries, but but we will. Um, our, our our stats came back, and um, we got supporters. We got we got supporters in Israel right now. In Israel, we even got we got supporters in the Middle East they're listening to the podcast right now what would you tell them the panel's open what would you tell them about this topic conflict resolution because they're listening panel's open conflict uh, the birthplace of all conflict is comparison what you have to do to eliminate uh, conflict no matter where you are on the planet even conflict that's lasted over 3,000 years between the Israelis and the Palestinian groups in the Middle East is stop comparing and start focusing on what 
creates a better future for your children and their children because it's not about you. We're the landlords of this place. You're not the owners. Our children and our grandchildren are the owners of this place. And when people lose sight of that, that's when we get the kind of conflict we get. Certainly there's conflict at the global scale that you mentioned, Isaiah. Um, most of my work is not that. My work is conflict at the level of middle schools, high schools, sometimes elementary schools. And so your question was, what are strategies for de-escalation? Um, and so certainly I recognize that there is a geopolitical component to that, but I'll focus in on the work that we do in uh, middle and high schools. It is one of the key strategies that we use um, to support de-escalation is actually helping train students on what we describe as getting self-connected. In our training, what we suggest is that when I am triggered, something has happened such that um, I am feeling physically, emotionally triggered in some way, then in that moment, I often begin to disassociate and am not fully present to myself in the moment. The, the patterns of behavior that I have developed throughout my life really assert themselves and begin to take over and my intentionality uh, begins to retreat. Uh, we refer to that as being self-disconnected. And so the practice that we train in our students is uh, self-connection, uh, and we actually call it self-connection practice, SCP. Um, and so that when students are starting to feel triggered, the thing that we train them to do first is to self-connect. Um, and there are a variety of techniques we use, but by far my favorite self-connection practice is just taking a moment uh, to breathe. And if you really want to lean into some of the popular literature today, take a deep double breath. <laughs> Inhale hard twice, hold it, and then exhale. Uh, but the first step in self-connection is to take a breath and then to get present to what am I feeling in the moment? Am I feeling tired? Am I feeling angry? Am I feeling frustrated? And then the real key, the third piece of the self-connection practice that we train students in is after I've taken a breath, really gotten reconnected to myself physically, I've identified what I'm feeling in the moment, gotten reconnected to myself uh, emotionally then I identify what is the need that that feeling is pointing to. So if I'm feeling tired, maybe I need sleep. If I'm feeling hungry, I need food. If I'm feeling sad, maybe I need kindness. You know, if I'm feeling angry, maybe I need space. Uh, but after I've taken a breath and I've identified the feeling, then I identify the, feel, the need that the feeling is pointing to. And that when students can do those three things, and we refer to the presence that they experience after having done those three things as a state of self-connection, that they've completed the self-connection practice. And what we found is that when students can consistently self-connect after moments of triggering, that their ability to make decisions that actually support their well-being and the well-being of their schools seems to dramatically increase. Now, you know that was hot. The panel's still up. Who's, who's next? My esteemed panelists all echoed the same sentiments, Isaiah, when you spoke about if you did something bad at school and you came home 
everybody in the neighborhood knew it. And what I'm going for right now is the old school. Uh, I was looking forward to hearing Dr. Mel again. Old school, one of the things when I first heard her that she talked about was a simple old school word called love. And we can come up with all of this complex information and all of these scientifically developed theories, but the, the old saying still holds true. People don't care how much you know until they know how much you care. And that's why I talked about the motivational interviewing, because you can tell the way the doctor ed- examines you if they care. And you can tell from the questions they ask if they care. And once you know that people care, you're going to feel safe. And once you feel safe, you're going to be honest in what you're saying. And now when you go to do something like AJ's talking about when we uh, take the two breaths and and then ask them to analyze what you feel, you're going to get truth instead of what they think you want to hear. They're going to give you truth because they've heard and felt truth from the love that you've shown them. But watch this. Are educators even patient enough to even use that technique? Do we take the time out to even use that strategy? To self-connect with our, with our scholars, with our young people, but we want them to connect to our information. But do we connect to their emotions? The panel's open. And, well, I certainly would, would want for every educator in the country to have those techniques as well. This is also part of why I teach student-led restorative practices. You, know, you can learn more at studentledrp.org. There's a ton of re- free resources like the one I just described. But the reason that I'm a proponent of student-led restorative practices and as opposed to adult-led is because I don't want every aspect of creating a workable learning community to be 100% on the teachers. I actually want them to be freed up to actually teach. And the more tasks that we uh, burden them with, then the less energy, the less cognitive uh, space they have to focus on instruction, which they are the experts of and that we need them really leaning into. And so uh, do I want every educator to have access to these tools as well? Certainly, certainly. But do I want it to be on them to create a culture and climate of their schools of work? No, actually, I don't. I want it to be on them to create high quality instruction and I want it to be on the students and everyone else in the community to be about the work of creating a community that allows that instruction to thrive. Okay. Okay. I got a question. Cause see, this is so good and I'm not going to let you go yet until I ask this question. Uh, the, well, I got two questions. First question is, will you come back to the podcast? <laughs> be delighted to. Okay. Good, good, good. Now we got that out the way. Second question, we had another panelist on, one of my newfound brothers, he was talking about equity and equality. He said to him, uh, equity and equality is just like giving a bunch of shoes away to children, right? It's equal. But the equity is giving it to them and their shoe size. Are we creating discipline policies okay that's tailor-made to every ethnicity 
or are or is that marginalized? Now, what I mean by that is when children make mistakes because they're learning, they're developing. But are children of different ethnicities, black and brown, indigenous, when they make mistakes, are they treated differently? The panel's open. What's your thoughts? So the uh, U.S. Department of Education, I think it was 2008 that they put out a study that was looking at disciplinary patterns across the nation. And what the study seemed to find was that pretty much anywhere you go, the purely objective infractions were largely being enforced similarly. So did little AJ bring a gun? Uh, Regardless of what color little AJ was, they probably got the exact same discipline. Did little AJ, you know, have a dime bag at school? Regardless of what color little AJ was, probably got the same amount of discipline. What the study highlighted was that where you saw significant uh, variation in disciplinary rates by race occurred not in the objective infractions, but in the subjective infractions. So um, a, a classic example of subjective infraction is insubordination or disrespect. And so apparently what's happening, or what was happening at the time of the study was that the perceptions of students of color being disrespectful seem to be happening much more frequently than the perceptions of other students being disrespectful. And then correspondingly, there's disciplinary practices that followed up on that. So either that means that children of color are inherently more disrespectful and more insubordinate than their peers, or it means that students of color are interpreted as being more insubordinate, more disrespectful, or some confluence of the two. Um, I suspect it's probably purely a function of interpretation. Um, I'm, I'm not of the belief that they're just automatically more so. Um, but that's just my experience, having worked in a lot of schools that are predominantly African-American Latino students. That, that is not my experience, that uh, these students are inherently more insubordinate. But I definitely did see how adults could interpret their behavior differently. And I do think there is a cultural aspect. I don't think it's a racial aspect. I don't think it's like genetic aspect. I'd say it's a cultural aspect that different cultures are interpreted differently. You know, and so in some cultures, you know, maybe we talk with our hands and we're making big gestures. Well, if it's a different culture that doesn't talk with their hands and make big, big gestures, maybe they see that as a disrespect. Well, little AJ is kind of moving their hands around when they're talking. It's like, well, hold up. You, you're being disrespectful in how you communicate. That would be an example of a cultural difference that might lead to an interpretation of disrespect where that wasn't actually what's intended. And so that seems to be what the data suggests. That, um, from my best estimates, is a training issue in that the adults have to um, have the ability to see what are the differences in cultural expression and how does that show up in their classroom and how do they interact with those differences. You, you know, the thing, what I, what I, I really do this, but my pushback on that is this. Data, right, really cannot interpret 
human response. Now, what do I mean by this? Okay, because data is a is a a variable, meaning it is not humanized unless it's qualitative, right? But statistically, with standard deviation, you're talking about a process that cannot be humanized. All right, give example. How do you, all right, interpret singing from different cultures? If I give you a standard jazz piece, Blue Moon, but I give it to a certain culture and they sing it a different way. I cannot interpret that because that is self-interpretation. And it won't be sung the same way because that's a personalized interpretation. Same thing with, with art. It is not cookie cutter. So statistically speaking, there's limitations. That's like anything with man is limitations. Now God, <clears throat> we understand, or we should understand that there's no limits because his range of love has no limits. So it cannot be measured. So the gifts that he gives humanity cannot be measured. That's why it's ever evolving. But I like what you said, but interpretation, we cannot frame it. But the panel's open. What's your thoughts? AJ made me think about the angry black woman and Karen subjectivity you hear what you expect to hear um, you use the musical analogy and as you know Isaiah I'm also a professional musician have been for 60 years I, I knew that was going to get you close, come on there's a close uh, relatively to blues and country they call it bluegrass and ironically, they start to run the risk the same way, and the chord structures are quite simpler. I went to a musical event with some of my Hindu brothers recently, and man, they sing and play drums like they did in Africa. I never knew that because I had never been there before. But now that I know Mahesh and I know Sachin, I'm using Buddy's analogy by name, I have an appreciation for what they are and who they are. But if we look at our penal system, we'll understand part of the problem because the penal system chose to put people in jail that were defenseless. They would take the street drug dealer and put him in jail, but the guy that was the high-end dealer selling it to the street dealers was related to the police chief, and so therefore he didn't get discipline and that goes on in our schools every day i grew up with that so certain people didn't get disciplined because they were connected and those that weren't properly connected didn't get the blessings and it still goes back to transparency it goes back to to, to love for me and showing care and 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 doing something to deal with it. I like what AJ was telling us 
about how he dealt with the the problem when he put kids in charge of the leadership because now the 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 teachers didn't have to have so much authority so it it's all still subjective uh and it goes down to the hearts of those people that are doing things but long as there's people like aj and buddy and and, and, and you, Isaiah, and the podcast like this one, we got some hope, but we just got to speak out. We can't be afraid to say what's in our minds and our hearts. Listen, this conversation is hot. Oh, the panel's still open. I'm, I'm about to go to some questions because AJ, I got to ask you a question about school administration. Uh, it's, I believe it's aligned to what we're talking about right now in this conversation. But the panel's still open. Are there any more thoughts and remarks? Yeah, I want to. I wanted to throw something in because I think both uh, Carl and AJ both hit on something important. Over thirty years ago, a good friend of mine and yours, uh, Isaiah Sandy Roberts, who is a worldwide suicide expert, helped develop a peer mediation uh, in the junior uh, middle schools and the high schools in Palo Alto, California. And when peer mediation was supported by the staff and the parents, it reduced conflict in the schools by more than 80%. 80%. Now we can fast forward to today, and there are peer mediation groups in the select high schools all over the country. Unfortunately, there's not peer mediation in all of the schools. But when the students are allowed to co-create the rules of behavior and allowed to project their moral imperative and their ethical approach to life on their fellow students, the fellow students listen. And the reason they listen is because they want to fit in. They don't yeah. want to rock the boat. If they know something is wrong and they know they're going to have to stand in front of their peers and hear their peers say, we're not going to tolerate that. And it wasn't the adults. It wasn't the parents. It wasn't the administrators. It was the students themselves who said, could we please take a crack at this. And because Sandy was the counselor at the school, they, they t tasked her with that job and she birthed peer mediation in the schools more than 30 years ago. And I, I, I think that echoes what AJ is saying. You let these kids co-create their world because it is their world. Oh my God. Yeah, Sandy, she's a miracle. She's a walking miracle. Uh, AJ, please tell us and all this a little bit about yourself and what you got going on currently and, and how they can get in contact with you because uh, you're amazing. No, uh, everything uh, everybody just said right now is spot on. The impact that students can have on students um, is powerful. Um, and it's because. Uh, the one of the hallmarks of adolescence is a transition from uh, gaining your sense of identity and community from the adults and caregivers to gaining that sense of identity and community from peers. And so when we transition authority for the culture and climate of schools, similarly, that we, that we create a space for students to own that, um, then we're tapping into just the natural growth and development processes. Uh, I have the privilege of doing this work right now uh, with four high schools that we are transitioning from an adult retributive approach to discipline to a student-led restorative approach to uh, community uh, creation. And so 
it is it is work that requires that you actually start with adults. And so we're in the, starting up, we're in the middle of the second year of a two-year pilot for these four high schools. But for the first nine months of the 24-month pilot, now remember, this is student-led restorative practices. The sole purpose of this is to create a space where students are leading. For the first nine months, all I did was train adults. And so people were like, I thought this was student-led restorative practices. How come you haven't trained any students yet? And the response is that I have never had a scenario where students have destroyed a student-led restorative practices initiative. That if they crumble, if they fall apart, it is because of adults. And so if you wanted to have any meaningful chance to grow and thrive, even though what we're building is student leadership, you have to train and in some cases retrain the adults first to be open to and willing to create a space for student leadership to emerge. Like it's already in the students, it's already available, it's already happening. Uh, the, the, it just needs coaching and, and space. Uh, but often as adults, we choke that out. We don't create space for that. And so that's why so much of the training before we ever train a single student is about training the adults to begin to let go of the criminal justice in schools approach to discipline that is what almost every school in America does and begin the transition to a restorative practices first approach to discipline in schools. You a beast. <laughs> uh, so Dr. AJ, so why do, well, let me ask this question. Let me ask it a different way. Cause I want to talk about, I want to talk about school administration. I want to talk about school principals, those school leaders, those instructional leaders. Why must administrative procedures be completed before a principal suspends a student from school? We're talking about conflict resolution. I know there are different levels but uh, of offenses. I know there are different levels of offenses, should I say. But looking through your lens and your perspective, what procedures must an administrative complete before they actually expel or suspend a student? Yeah, the, the first framing that I would invite you into for this is that public education, and in many states, this is actually like here in Texas, it's enshrined in the state constitution, and that's the case in many states across the country. But in general, across the U.S., public education is a right. People have a right to a, a free uh, and appropriate public education. And that right is backed up in state statute and state constitutions, but it's also certainly backed up um, in federal law. But this is actually a right that students have to to being able to pursue a public education. And so anytime we're going to talk about taking action that has the effect of depriving students of their right, there has to be a process in place, no matter how much that may be frustrating or you know, challenging for folks who are experiencing whatever the behavior was. The family does still have a right to the child having a free and appropriate public education and and we we can't 
casually withdraw that right in the same way that state law gives you the right to go and get a driver's license if you want. And if we're going to take that driver's license away from you, there needs to be a process and a reason. It shouldn't just be casually taken from you. Um, it's, it's a, it's a privilege that you have that, um, that as long as we allow everybody else to have that privilege, then we need to treat it um, carefully before we just withdraw it from you. Um, and so this is, this is the nature of the thing is that it's a right, but the reason we've created it as a right is because we know that if young people do not receive an education, then they are now subject to having to find their way in an unforgiving world that is not designed with their well-being in mind. And in that context, you should, it should be noted that you do not see an epidemic of starving children roaming the streets of the country. Um, and the reason is because much like me, when I was young and um, unhoused for a while, um, even though I didn't have money, I still found ways to eat, even if that meant acquiring food in not exactly legal ways is that the moment we say to a child, you are not going to have the education you need to take care of you and your family, we are saying that either society is going to pick up the bill for providing you what you need all day, every day, or we're saying good luck going and finding it through non-legal means. And many young children, just like I did, absolutely go that route. And so it's not just a right because it's great for them. We also extend public education as a right to children because it's great for the rest of us, because the community that we want to live in is one where I don't have to look over my shoulder every time I see a child walk past. Because I know that they are busy getting an education and they're going to have access to opportunity that doesn't involve breaking into my house. And so I, I definitely get that it's challenging to wait on the slow processes that school systems go through when deciding whether or not a student should be expelled. Having made that choice, um, and I don't take expulsions lightly, um, but there are certain circumstances where I would support that. Um, it is not a restorative path, but I would support it nevertheless in certain circumstances. But there must be a process because it is a right that we afford to children and that we want them to have. Yeah, listen, I'm going to tell you right now, listeners, you got to play this over and over again. And unpack everything that you just heard And you got to share this too Share it to your friends Share it to your loved ones Hey, even share it to your haters Buddy Thornton, I'm coming down your lane What are the four causes of conflict in schools? Well, you asked me to unpack this So I'm going to unpack but it's not just four things, it's four groups of things. So if you want to uh, write them down or you want to just listen and maybe re-listen and write them down, they are what we call in the conflict world, disruptive traits. And they come in four groups. One is the abstract group. Conflict comes from lack of proper perception, 
different beliefs, embedded biases, definitely ideology, especially in this current uh, environment, and conflicting goals. That's the abstract thinking group. We have a forward-facing group that has conflict that comes out of it, and that's overlapping authority and expectations on how to satisfy that authority, including your own self-authority. And unclear roles. Where do I fit in? How do I fit in? And how do I make sure I don't create conflict? And then the third is outlier behavior. Everyone can identify outlier behavior, bullying, harassment, microaggressive culture, online uh, comments, uh, insidious behavior, uh, the click syndrome. All those are outlier, outlier behaviors. Those obviously, those are obvious conflicts. But how about the organic pecking order that caused so much conflict that we see as being totally invisible to most people? And that is, there is conflict automatically because of multidimensional learning styles, learning defects, the pace that someone has the ability to learn, the pace that they've learned in their environment, and their overall innate ability. And we have to address all of those to just even understand where a child who is only looking for two things, to socialize and to find out where they fit in the world. If they're struggling in that fourth organic pecking order arena, they are going to be a catalyst for conflict, constant internal conflict and outwardly expressed conflict. So that's where conflict comes from in school, across society too, but in the microcosm of school, when you're in an enclosed campus environment, it becomes completely outsized. It gets magnified. And that is the four causes of conflict. Ooh, this is hot. Listen, we, we're almost out of time, but before we go, let me let me ask Carberry this question. So why should we resolve conflicts? Not only school conflicts, but just conflicts in totality. You work with a lot of people. Mr. Barry, you work with a lot of people. And I know you see conflicts. <laughs> you work in the church. Come on. I know you see conflicts. And I, I want to do a lead-in. After you answer this question, I want to open up the panel with the same question. Why should you resolve school conflicts quickly? That's my question. I'll certainly jump in here. Um, the purpose of school is to grow what students know and are able to do. And so anytime we're spending time on not that, then we are outside the purpose of school. Um, now, learning how to negotiate conflict is certainly one of the things that is valuable to learn at school. And so learning the process of that is great. But anytime that we are knee deep in the phenomenon of conflict, we're probably not learning the other things that we're intending to learn at the moment. And so that's why there is some value in having a way of helping students learn how to navigate conflict uh, quickly, efficiently, in a way that's non-disruptive to the rest of the learning going on. Oh my God, I'm, I'm about to park the car right here. Uh, anybody else, what's, what's your thoughts? How should we resolve? Working, Come on. Working with churches and government, you find that it maintains a more harmonious working environment where team members will feel valued and understood and it makes them more uh, efficient in what they do, and they have increased morale. 
professional and personal relationships can offer uh, suffer from unresolved arguments. It's like not treating uh, a symptom. And so it's very important that we react quickly and succinctly, and it's important to react maybe not even if it's the right solution. A reaction is something that people want to see. At least somebody's trying to do something. Oh, I love that response. I love both of those responses. Buddy Thurden, please take us home, but I want you to take us home with this in mind. Right now, there are people listening to you all over the world, and what you say is going to resonate. My reflection is that, you know, when we are dealing with conflict, and I think tonight's topic was very apropos, the most important thing we need to realize is that everybody has a perspective and yet professionals like AJ, Carl, and myself, we have the underlying and we need to make sure that the world gets their hands on the underlying. Uh, AJ said something very apropos. He said, we, we have to put things into the hands of the kids because the only time things fall apart is when the adults get involved. 13 years of analytics in my company and 91% of the problems between parents and their teens is exacerbated or started by the parent. So when you look at 91% versus 9%, I would say that what AJ said from a totally different arena and from a totally different perspective was spot on, even though he and I have never met each other. If professionals and people who care about other people can make a connection and the data that they have validates each other, then why can't we get that message out to the world? Because for one reason or another, people hinge on self-interest. We've got to get them to stop hinging on self-interest and realize that the common good for our children is way more important than any of the things we could throw at the world. So, you know, when I know 91% of the parents are not part of the solution, I know where my target is. That's why I'm a parent coach. When AJ knows that the children are the best way to resolve issues, that's why he works where he works. I'm a a huge advocate of the IRP, the International Institute of Restorative Practices, and I've written articles all over the world about restorative practices. And there is no topic that the opposing viewpoint hates more than to hear us say that. We've got to bridge the gaps. We've got to keep our voices loud and proud and say what we know is true because we validate it through our work and our research. We have to protect the people who believe that co-creation and moving forward as a group is more powerful than satisfying individual needs. And I think that's the basic premise of conflict resolution. Impact of Educational Leadership Podcast.